0: Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 2, A World in Revolution. So, for the next two episodes, we're going to diverge slightly from the main narrative of Napoleon to give some context in what was going on in the world around him, how this influenced his rise to prominence, and how it gave him the opportunity to have such a titanic influence on revolutionary France and the world at large. It's important to touch on these events individually, because without the revolution, You could argue there is no Napoleon. And certainly, without Napoleon, the French Revolution, at least in second stage, might not have ever ended, at least not the way that we know it. But beyond that, there are just too many important people to Napoleon's story that all tie in somehow to the revolution. And I think it's important to give some background on them so that we can, in turn, remember who they are when they re-enter our story down the road. And re-enter our story, they certainly will so i've decided to split the revolution into a two-part mini-series and then we'll get back on track to napoleon next week and don't worry there is plenty to talk about still with the little corporal and i think understanding this context will help get us a better idea of how napoleon was able to come onto the scene the way that he did lastly i think it's a good time to discuss where we'll start and end these two episodes now there is some debate as to when the french revolution really started Most consider the storming and subsequent fall of the Bastille as the starting points. But I've always felt like that's just a convenient, accurate dart throw because it happens to be a violent takeover of a symbol of royal authority in one event. Bang, bang, boom. Easy to pinpoint. But there are so many factors that led up to that single event, and any one of those could honestly be considered the quote start of the revolution calling of the estates general and the subsequent swearing of the tennis court oath, or even further back to the end of the Seven Years' War before Napoleon was born and its geopolitical ramifications. Or, you know, the fact that France had no damn money and still went to war with Britain to help some rebellious American colonists in their own revolution. All of them have valid arguments. But regardless of the starting point, the real debate is when the French Revolution ended. Some will argue it ended in earnest after the fall of Robespierre and the subsequent Thermidorian reaction. Others will argue further with the coup of 18 Brumaire when Napoleon came to power. Others still would even say that it didn't end until after the Napoleonic Wars and the Bourbons were restored on the throne. I mean, that is a literal revolution, is it not? All are valid arguments, for the sake of brevity and context, these two episodes are going to end at the Thermidorian reaction. Now, I'm not saying that's when the revolution itself ended, but I think us leaving it there will be a good transition point into how we're going to introduce a young artillery officer onto the scene for some of his first notable action in what would become an unforgettable life. Now, with that said, giving an entire rundown on the French Revolution would take up an entire series in and of itself, and so these episodes are going to go over many of the important events in broad strokes. Hell, even giving a rundown on the first half of the revolution, as we're doing here, would practically take up the majority of that series. So I'm going to leave out a lot of specific details and people for the sake of time, as well as not to diverge too far up topic, we will touch on the most famous aspects of the revolution and the most important i.e states general fall of the bastille tennis court oath national assembly legislative assembly national convention louis the 16th becoming louis capet and then becoming louis without a cap at all the reign of terror all the fun stuff the importance of these events of course how the revolution played out both domestically and internationally and how that allowed napoleon to burst in front of a national audience and become a hero essentially overnight. So, with all of that said, let's dive in to the French Revolution. The origins of the French Revolution are complex and multifaceted. It's generally agreed upon that its causes were a combination of economic, social, political, and historical factors that ultimately led to an uncontrollable powder keg, which, when ignited, completely changed the political structure of a monarchist, conservative France specifically, and Europe generally. You see, France had been ruled by what is known in history as the Ancien Régime, literally the old rule, and it was split into three broad classes of society known as the Three Estates. Now, within each estate, there were even broader social stratas, but in general, the Three Estates worked as such. The first estate consisted of the clergy, that is, the Catholic Church, making up about 2-3% of the population. The second estate was made up of the nobility, making up around 10-12% of the population and about 80-85% of the country's wealth. And then there was the third estate, which consisted of literally everyone else, about 85% of the population. The Ancien Régime had ruled France since the late Middle Ages, around 1500 AD, and saw its pinnacle of high court rule defined by absolutism during the reign of the Sun King, King Louis XIV. His insistence on the divine right to rule would be a critical component of revolutionary ideals as the Enlightenment age began to question the legitimacy of this supposed divinity, or really the need for monarchies altogether, during the 17th and 18th centuries. Fast forward to the mid-18th century, and these ideals of Enlightenment began to take roots in all areas of society. You see, during the reign of King Louis XIV, the Palace at Versailles, which he expanded from a few small chateaus into a sprawling country palatial estate, was the center of all cultural, political, economic, and social influence in France. But as the 17th century ended and the 18th century began, more and more people became educated. More people were learning how to read and write, and this meant that there was now a much larger audience for a budding media sector in French society. And as a result of this, more people now had the ability to discuss ideas with one another in places like coffee shops, Masonic lodges, and reading clubs. And this exchange of ideas, many of them based on enlightened principles of the day, meant that now more and more people were beginning to question the existing order of things in France. Why was the wealth only in the hands of a very minor nobility? Why did the church have so much influence on society? Why did all of the power in a country of nearly 30 million people lie in the hands of a single man? Why did we think that extremely tight pants and powdered wigs were fashionable? Over time, these questions and ideas spread like wildfire, and to add more gasoline onto that inferno, France in the mid-18th century was in shambles financially. Now, to go into every detail of France's financial crisis would also take up its own episode. And by the way, If you're looking for a podcast that details nearly every event of the French Revolution, Mike Duncan's Revolution series is about as great a series as there is for this kind of content. It was a huge source material for this episode specifically, as well as the series overall. But to put it simply, France's financial system faced a series of budgetary crises over the course of the 18th century, almost all of them as a result of the regressive taxism that they had in place, exorbitant spending while nearly maxing out all available credit lines, and involving themselves in foreign affairs that they just could not afford. See, of course, the American Revolution, which we'll get to in a second. You see, France's royal family and nobility were in charge of spending, but not revenue. This was in contrast to, say, Britain, where Parliament could approve both expenditures and tax increases. But France did not have a parliamentary-style form of government, at least not in the modern sense. Taxes could only be raised if approved by the Estates General, which was a convening of all of the uh, states in France, into a single session outline changes in government planning and reform. Such a meeting was rare, though, and the last one hadn't occurred since 1614. And so as a result, revenue responsibility was given to the local Parlement, that is, local appellate courts that essentially divided up the French state. Now, while these individual Parlement were willing to authorize one-off tax increases to generate more revenue when necessary, they were always reluctant to do so for the long term. As a result, collection of these taxes was almost always carried out by private individuals, meaning that corruption, bribery, and pocketing money was a common practice. The cherry on top of all of this was that the lowest classes, that is the third estate, were the only ones who actually had to pay taxes. If you were part of the nobility or the clergy, that is, you know, the two classes that held somewhere like 85 to 95% of the wealth, you didn't have to pay anything. This all came to a head in the latter half of the 18th century. In 1770, France defaulted on her debts, and after a series of reforms were implemented by then finance minister Jacques Turgot, France was miraculously able to balance her budget by 1776 and reduced her spending from 12% to only 6%. It was quite literally a throne-saving miracle that Turgot had pulled off. And had the status quo continued, it's likely that the Ancien Régime and King Louis XVI and his hated wife Marie Antoinette could have stayed on their throne for the rest of their lives. But we know that's not what happened. We know that what would happen would... Really define the ages. And since we've introduced them, and before we go any further, let's give a quick rundown on two major players to our mini-series story: the most infamous royal couple in history, King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette. King Louis XVI was born Louis Auguste to the heir of the French throne, the Dauphin, also named Louis, on August the 23rd, 1754. After his father died in 1765, he assumed the position of Dauphin, and he himself would succeed his grandfather, again also named Louis, as king in 1774. While initially viewed as somewhat of an enlightened monarch for his day, Louis was immediately beset by his biggest flaw. He was indecisive as all hell. He was easily swayed by those closest to him, and he would often make decisions based on who was selling him the best story the moment he needed to decide. And this, coupled with his social awkwardness, made him a prime target to be the worst kind of leader for a moment like the French Revolution. He just wasn't really endearing to his subjects, and it didn't really help matters that he was married to Marie Antoinette, an Austrian, France's archenemy since, well, forever. Marie Antoinette was born November second, 1755, as the penultimate child of Holy Roman Emperor Francis I and Empress Maria Theresa. Betrothed to Louis at age 14, Marie Antoinette was immediately unpopular with the French on account of her Austrian heritage, of course, and the fact that her and Louis did not immediately have children. It has been noted numerous times that their love life, or lack thereof, was the subject of much ridicule in the papers of the day. Now, while her standing did improve after she began having children, including Louis-Joseph, the newest au she was always viewed as an outsider in a very close circle of French nobility by the general public. Mocked, too, for being promiscuous, harboring sympathies for France's enemies, which, to be fair, would indeed come to pass, and accusations that she tried to defraud the crown's jewelries in acquiring an expensive diamond necklace led to her having a reputation as a lavish spender on the French dime. Now, while she was absolved of guilt for the latter incident, known in history as the Affair of the Diamond Necklace, the trial by media that it created was enough to damage her reputation beyond repair. And as the revolution came into focus, she became known mockingly as Madame Deficit. I should also note that she never publicly stated her most often attributed phrase, let them eat cake or let them eat brioche. But as it would turn out, her ignorant attitude towards what life was like for most of France made it irrelevant. And that's why, cliche as it may be, it has stuck to this day. And unfortunately, Marie Antoinette is really just a byline for ignorance is bliss. Until it isn't. So, now that we've introduced two of the most hated and, quite frankly, tragic monarchs in French history, let's go back to France's debts. As Louis was taking over the throne... Across the Atlantic Ocean, some rabble-rousing British colonists were all up in rebellion, complaining about some taxes on stamps, sugar, and tea, and having delusions of starting a new country forged on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. France, as she is one to do, saw a lovely opportunity here to get back at her eternal enemies for their defeat in the Seven Years' War a generation earlier. And after a nice little victory by everyone's favorite traitor, Benedict Arnold, and overrated General Horatio Gates, over gentleman Johnny Burgoyne at the Battles of Saratoga, France became convinced that with her aid, these rabble-rousing American colonists could defeat Great Britain and weaken her to France's benefit. Boy, oh boy, she did not see what was to come. Ironically, Turgot did see what would come. He strongly advised King Louis to not enter into the war, knowing France could not afford it. And unfortunately for Turgot, and as it would turn out, Louis's entire family... He was fired for this disagreement in May of 1776, and was ultimately replaced by a series of ministers before Louis chose his ride-or-die, Jacques Necker. Now, we'll get into Necker a little later, but suffice it to say, he was absolutely detested by the majority of the nobility because he was one, a commoner, two Swiss, and three, most importantly, a Protestant. And despite the fact that he was arguably the best man suited for the job based on his financial acumen and career credentials, the nobility, in all of their vaingloriousness, could not stand to listen to this commoner Swiss Protestant tell them how not to spend their money. So, as a result, he too was replaced by the now infamous Charles de Colon in 1781, right as the American Revolutionary War was coming to its effective end. Now, Collin understood the financial situation France was in from their involvement in the war, as well as the greater Anglo-French wars that extended into the Caribbean. He knew that to cover the costs of funding these wars, France would have to take on substantial, and I do mean substantial, state debt. The French nobility would live off the interest of this state debt, and by the mid-1780s, France was unable to keep up with the payments and was near insolvency. The only way that they would be able to pay off these debts would be to raise taxes, and to the surprise of no one the regional parliament refused to do so. Calon then persuaded King Louis to call together a council of the higher nobility, called the Assembly of Notables, to convince them to raise taxes. But once again, they refused, and the national debt continued to rise until it hit an almost unimaginable high of 4.5 billion livres. This, coupled with an intentional devaluation of the currency that caused runaway inflation and in a record-cold winter that destroyed harvest in 1788-89, to 89, devastated the already destitute lower rungs of the Third Estate and pushed France to the brink of financial collapse. King Louis, with no alternative due to his tepid decision-making in the previous decade, had to summon the Estates General for the first time in 175 years. It would be the last time anyone would summon the Estates General. The convening of the Estates General was one of the biggest events in French history up to that time. While the Estates had been called before, the last time it convened in 1614, the political and social landscape of France was so different than in 1789, its use as a functionary of government reform was not entirely understood. To put in perspective just how long 175 years is? If we start on the day the Americans issued their Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, 175 years from that date would be July 4th, 1951. Think about how much changed from 1776 to 1951. We're talking about the French Revolution, our boy Napoleon, the Industrial Revolution, the American Civil War, the scramble for Africa, Two world wars, among a million other things I wouldn't be able to list in a matter of an hour. In 1776, they were using musket balls and cavalry charges to kill the enemy. In 1951, they were using jet fighters and strategic bombers with the capability of dropping nuclear payloads. Night and day can't even begin to describe it. Now, this uncertainty on precedent led to a major debate as to how the voting process would work when it came to implementing changes in the government. That is creating a constitution, implementing a reasonable tax system, and getting rid of feudalism. Now on the one hand, the most conservative members of the assembly, that is the majority of the older clergy and the nobility, wanted the voting process to proceed as it had in 1614, with each estate getting one vote. This would ensure, though, without question, that the first two estates would veto anything the third estate proposed, essentially killing any chance of reform. Now on the other hand, Because each estate was to send a certain amount of elected representatives to the estates general, the growing bourgeoisie class of the third estate wanted the estates to have votes based on each individual member present. Many in the third estate also believed that there would be enough sympathetic members of the first and second estates to help sway votes in their favor should the opportunity arise. One such notable example was America's favorite hero, the Marquis de Lafayette of the second estate. But this was especially true when the election results for the representatives came back in the early spring of 1789. King Louis was very confident he could rely on the clergymen on his behalf, but many of the elected officials for the first estate were local parish priests sympathetic to the plight of the common people rather than, say, higher-ranking bishops King Louis had hoped would be the chosen representatives to the estates general. Now, following elaborate ceremonies to mark the occasion, the actual meetings were contentious from the start. Following all of the pomp, the estates were seated in accordance within their respective estates, that is, the first two estates at the head of the hall, with the third estate at the back. Now, while taxes were the main issue to be discussed, there were also other items at hand, such as absolutism, constitutional power, and noble fees. But King Louis and the first two estates made it well known from the start that the protocol from the previous estates general would be the order of the day, that is, each estate having one vote the Third Estate had more than double of the elected representatives of each other estate combined, was merely irrelevant. Now this arguing ultimately led to an impasse, and when the first two estates voted to continue debating with or without the Third Estate, the Third Estate began to take matters into their own hands, garnering sympathetic members of the first two estates, and founding what has been known in history as the National Assembly, one of the first provincial bodies that would be representative of the people, not the estates themselves. Now, this move was done, in part, to gain more leverage over the first two estates, but it was also done as a move to show just how much they really wanted and needed change. After King Louis, on advice from his Privy Council, decided to lock the National Assembly members out of the halls, they looked for a building big enough to fit all of them, settling on a nearby tennis court, and all of the members agreed not to leave the court until they had settled on a new constitution for France, and this oath became known as the Tennis Court Oath of June twentieth, seventeen 1789. This event effectively ended the Estates General and the body in its entirety. Other nobles began to join, and the National Assembly became the National Constituent Assembly a few weeks later, really the first Parliament of France. Now to summarize, the Estates General was the spark that lit the views. Its convening and subsequent dissolution into abject failure was really that watershed moment that opened the eyes of many in the nobility, as well as King Louis, that the old order was nearing its end and that changes had to be made. And made they would, fast. Because at this point, Louis was just in an impossible situation. On the one hand, he had his wife and his brother, the future King Charles X and current Comte d'Artois, telling him to essentially rule by royal decree, as was his birthright. But on the other hand, he needed to give in to some reform or risk complete insurrection. But unfortunately for Louis, as would be the case for much of his reign, he sided with the wrong people in the wrong corner at the wrong time, and he chose to side with his family. Now, this included the extremely unpopular decision to, once again, dismiss and banish Jacques Jacques as finance minister, largely because he was sympathetic to the Third Estate because, as you'll remember, he was a commoner. As a result, the Assembly believed that they would be shuttered and forcibly removed as a result of a conservative plot against them. And this was further validated when a large concentration of royal troops from regions outside of Paris, with many of the soldiers actually being foreign mercenaries, began to gather outside of Versailles, where the assembly was meeting. Now from here, it was clear that a violent insurrection would become inevitable. On the nights of July 12th and 13th of 1789, mobs of Parisians hoarded any place that had grains, guns, and supplies. The Gars Francais, the de facto police of Paris, were mostly all sympathetic to the common cause and did little to stop much of this violence. On the morning of July 13th, the electors of Paris recruited a large militia of 48,000 men to help restore order, a militia which would come to be known as the National Guard. Now, they would use red and blue cockades to help identify themselves, and their leader, the hero of two worlds the Marquis de Lafayette, would later add white to the cockade in honor of King Louis Sixteenth. From this, we get the famous French tricolor. But from the National Guard, we also get arguably the most famous event of the early revolution, indeed, the event that many believe actually kicked off the revolution, the storming of the Bastille. On the morning of July 14, 1789, Paris was on a knife's edge. The National Guard, fearing a royalist attack, stormed the Hotel d'Invalide with the intention of gathering the 30,000 or so muskets being stored there. However, despite the large number of arms at Invalide, there was little to no gunpowder. Much of it had been moved to the heavily fortified Bastille in anticipation of such an uprising. But that the gunpowder went to the Bastille just added further resentment from the masses. You see, the Bastille had long been a symbol of royal tyranny, a large, nearly impenetrable fortress that would house prisoners of the state against their will by direct order of the second estate were lettres de cachet, essentially arrest warrants. In reality, though, most of the prisoners there were treated relatively fairly given the standards of the day. And on the day of the storming, there were only seven people in prison there, a far cry from the hundreds often told in apocryphal stories. Nevertheless, its status as a symbol of the Ancien Régime was solidified on the morning of July 14th, when nearly 1,000 men marched their way over an attempt to retrieve that gunpowder. Now, despite some early negotiations with the Bastille's governor, Bernard René de Launay, the mob grew impatient, and by midday they had forced their way into the Bastille. By 5 p.m., Delaunay had surrendered, knowing he didn't have enough provisions to withstand a long siege, and he was subsequently dragged back down, stabbed to death, and had his head put on a spike and paraded through the streets. Now, King Louis would not learn of the events until the next morning, but upon doing so, he asked one of his aides, the Duke de la Rochefoucauld, is it a revolt? No, sire, the duke replied. It is a revolution. Now today, July 14th is celebrated annually throughout France's Bastille Day. And while celebrations are present in all major French cities, in 1789, the reality of the situation was no cause for celebration for the nobility. And King Louis himself finally resigned himself to the fact that France would have to change. And after the dust had settled on the storming of the Bastille, he recalled his forces, left Versailles for Paris... And on July 17th, he accepted the tricolor cockade to loud cries of long live the king and long live the nation. And while it must have been at least somewhat comforting for Louis to hear that, the nobility saw the writing on the wall. Many of them would flee France and become later known as the emigres, the first of whom was the Comte d'Artois. Many of these emigres would soon use their wealth and influence to fund national armies against revolutionary France in an attempt to restore the monarchy. They just couldn't have bands of common folk thinking that they had rights. That's outrageous. So they decided to buy armies and fight their own countrymen instead. But so it was. The émigrés were nothing more than symbols of the past, like the Bastille. And like the nobility, the Bastille would also be disassembled, many fearing that it would become a shrine for royalist sympathies. And after it was disassembled, the Marquis de Lafayette would give its key to the recently inaugurated first president of the United States, George Washington in 1790, but beyond the nobility there was a general anxiety amongst the population as to what would come next. Many of the delegates in the assembly could not agree on constitutional reform. Landowners in the rural countryside now feared for their property as it became clear that a new order was indeed on the horizon, and as it would turn out that fear was well founded. Now there was also an additional concern as to who would administer law and order in France's largest regional district, Paris. And while the National Guard were an effective police force, administration was another matter. Many of the urban working class were discontent with the fact that they had little representation in the Estates General and now the National Constituent Assembly. And so, after the storming of the Bastille, they founded the Paris Commune as the official government of Paris in August of 1789. After the Commune's establishment, the National Constituent Assembly announced the August Decrees, which abolished feudalism, noble privilege, provided equality before the law, freedom to worship, and the opening of public offices to all who desired to seek them. They would also suspend the regional parliament in November, which were seen as unnecessary with the now well-representative National Constituent Assembly. In a matter of six months, all of the institutions that comprised the centuries-old ancien regime were completely abolished. All that was left was the monarchy. But before everyone in Paris gets blood drunk on chopping off heads, they needed to come to a consensus on a new national constitution. An early draft, written by Lafayette and later presented as a final draft by the MACS, was the Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen. Heavily influenced by the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Rights of Man and the Citizen is one of the lasting and most influential articles to have come out of the French Revolution. Radical for its time, it outlined principal rights bestowed on French citizens and would later influence the enlightened concept of individual liberty and democracy in a free world. But the debate around who actually held power in government, a king, a constitutional monarchy, a legislator with the king as nothing more than a figurehead, was really at the heart of the issue. And citizenship was also a major sticking point, with those wanting landowners as principal citizens while everyone else being afforded civil rights. But then there were others who wanted all rights altogether for all men. Many of these issues would become major debates for one of the most radical factions of the French Revolution, the Jacobins. So, Now that we've gone this far in the episode, it's time to finally talk about the infamous Jacobin Club. I mentioned at the start of the episode that the Enlightenment era and rising literacy rates in France brought on more independent thinking, as well as a collective consciousness regarding new ideas and philosophies. This was especially prevalent in Paris, where many cafes and restaurants would host like-minded thinkers and allow them to exchange ideas, eventually turning many of these gatherings into political organizations, the most famous of which, of course, were the Jacobins. Now, the Jacobins was founded as the Society of Friends of the Constitution in 1789. Much of their early history is relatively unknown, since it was, at the time of the Estates General, an underground organization. But its original members were delegates from Brittany, including the Comte de Mirabeau, the Abbé C.S., the Abbé Grégoire, and a young deputy lawyer from Artois, Maximilien Robespierre. Now, I'll get into many of the factions within the Jacobin Club later in the episode specifically the Girondins and the Montagnards, as well as some of their most famous members, chiefly Robespierre and one literal giant, and Georges Danton. But for now, just know that they were a radical wing within the National Constituent Assembly, hell-bent on making revolutionary France as egalitarian a society as possible. And while still a relatively small faction within the Assembly, their influence began to grow steadily as 1789 progressed into absolute chaos. Because, you see, despite all this revolutionary fervor and excitement about a new age in French government, the economy was still deep in the red and food shortages were now leading to full-scale riots and lynchings of bread hoarders. The lower classes of Paris, who, up to this point, had been largely left out of the overwhelmingly bourgeoisie revolutionary policies, began to grow restless and began to demand action. These sans-culottes, literally without breeches in reference to the tight pants worn by the upper classes of the second and third estate, began to form local militias and demand that they, too, be represented in the proceedings. Now, another class that was left out of all of this, of course, were the women. Many women, long abused by the Ancien Régime and now having to deal with an economy that could bring them absolutely no relief, as well as facing the threat of starvation, assembled outside the Hôtel de Ville, seized weapons, and marched some 7,000 strong while gaining numbers along the way, all the way to Versailles. When they arrived, They entered the assembly, made it known that they would not disperse until their demands were met, and requested an audience with King Louis XVI. Now, Lafayette, as head of the National Guard, urged the king, for his own safety, to return to Paris and remain there with his people. And despite some skirmishes into the following morning, including a near lynching of Marie Antoinette, Louis relented and announced he would return to Paris permanently. He also stated that he would commit himself to a constitutional monarchy, even changing his title from King of France to King of the French. Now the Women's March on Versailles, as this event has become known to history, is one of the most important events to come out of the early revolution. It forced the royal family to come face to face with the suffering of their subjects for the first time. But it also instilled a belief among the common people, and especially among women, that they were all small actors on a massive stage, and that they could all help to drive the change necessary for New France. They had just forced their way into Versailles and had forced the king to come back to Paris, right? And while I'm sure he was terrified, Louis at least could fall back on the idea that he was there to help his subjects. I'll go to Paris, he thought, make an appearance, let them know that I'm a king of the revolution, and then I'll be back in a matter of a week. But little did he know that as he and his family made that slow trek up to Paris, it would be the last time any of them would ever see Versailles again.